The Retrograde Approach, Episode 6, Popliteal Artery Aneurysms. Welcome to another edition of the Retrograde Approach. I'm your host, Sam Farah. I'm joined by my friend, as always, Yogi San Sivakumar and Yogi. Good evening, Sam. Thanks thanks for the introduction. It's uh, lovely to be here with you on a wet, wet evening here in Brisbane. Are you uh, any chance of being flooded in your apartment, Yogi? No. I'm well above, <laughs> I'm well above ground level. You're safe. You're safe. For now. For now. I used to live I used to live in a uh, Queenslander style house down the road from the Royal Brisbane. And I was like, why why in the middle of metropolitan Brisbane does such a house exist? And then during a massive downpour, I learnt why <laughs> such a house existed. And that no house in Brisbane is potentially safe from flooding. So your apartment is potentially in the firing line, Yogi. Mate, I've, I've I've carefully planned this. I'm 12 floors above ground floor, so um, it's gonna take a anything could happen. Some, it's gonna take something very big to uh, to get me out of my apartment at this point in time. But Sam, um, it's uh, tonight we're gonna have a, a look through or have a discussion in regards to um, popliteal artery aneurysms, which is a uh, uh, a reasonably common presentation in our community um, and one that vascular surgeons are intimately involved in. Um, They present a degree of complexity in terms of their management strategies and the various treatment modalities that are are potentially offered for them. Yeah, yeah, I tend to find that uh, these are either really pleasant cases or really difficult, challenging cases. And in essence... This is because the management can either be a, a elective procedure that you've seen in our patients and organised an elective planned operation for an aneurysm which you found, or they come in either embolising or thrombosed, with often uh, very little running to the foot and present a challenging operative uh, dilemma and uh, decision making strategy that you must go through. Yeah, and I, and I think. Um as as with many other pathologies within our specialty, uh, innately there are various management paradigms that um, come into play. Um, some that can occasionally bite us uh, in the future if uh, a more conservative strategy is undertaken. However, as with anything in our specialty, it's often a compromise between the patient's underlying comorbidities and also the complexity of surgery that often defines what they end up receiving. So should we just talk uh, about each of those in turn, Yogi, acute presentations and the elective repairs? Yeah, look, Maybe. I think I think that I think that would be useful, and um, and I think it perhaps is a good place to start in terms of perhaps in, uh, talking about um, popliteal artery aneurysms, just in terms of the basic epidemiology within the community. So we uh, had a brief discussion of the, about this, Yogi, but. We generally define aneurysms as one and a half times the normal vessel diameter, but um, 
usually a popliteal artery is about five mils in size. So if you times that by one and a half, you know, eight, seven, eight, nine mils, we wouldn't actually in practice define that really as an aneurysm. We would potentially yeah. say that would be an ectatic vessel. Correct. And I, and I think um, uh, it, it, the relevance in terms of sort of being able to call um, a popliteal artery aneurysm probably then is reflected in terms of its thresholds of treatment rather than a specific diameter, uh, sort of a diameter of the vessel itself. But um, we, we encounter uh, ectatic popliteal arteries just from routine scanning, um, which may just be a normal variant or reflective of arteriomegaly where pe- people yeah. have so large vessels grossly. Let's not forget our. Uh, throughout their, so uh, there are several types itself. of popliteal aneurysms, Yogi. Uh, obviously, we have our more common degenerative types, which we see more frequently than the others, yes. often uh, associated with abdominal aortic aneurysms. We then have our false aneurysms, and these tend to be related to previous trauma. Uh, this could be from an orthopedic procedure, a motor vehicle accident, a fracture, or even, as I've seen once before, after an endovascular procedure where a wire has perforated the popliteal artery. And then finally, you have mycotic aneurysms, and these tend to be related to widespread bloodstream infections that have then uh, infected the popliteal artery aneurysm. And the one case of this I've seen is an infected uh, cardiac prosthetic valve. So um, inter- uh, so the indications for intervention for popliteal artery aneurysm do vary in terms of practice, but most surgeons would treat popliteal artery aneurysms when they reach two centimeters. The argument here is that um, there is the potential risk that as an- these aneurysms enlarge in size, they can potentially become symptomatic, which is also another indication for intervention. A symptomatic popliteal artery aneurysm can cause distal embolization to tibial vessels, uh, leading to a presentation of either claudication or chronic limb-threatening ischemia. They can be painful, uh, irrespective of the actual diameter of the popliteal artery aneurysm, or they may cause a compressive effect, um, and they can also result in the presentation of a deep vein thrombosis locally or uh, neurological symptoms if they are large enough to do so. Another consideration, which is a bit more difficult to uh, provide much clearer guidelines, is in terms of the thrombus burden within a popliteal artery itself. And that probably then relates to the fact that if someone has been symptomatic, that is they've embolized distally from a popliteal artery aneurysm and they've got reasonable thrombus load, um, that also probably meets um, an indication for treatment, even if they haven't quite reached the size threshold itself. So this is something we were talking about early, earlier, Yogi, before the show, that um, with uh, popliteal artery aneurysms, we actually really worry about rupture. We more worry about thro- thromboembolic potential or some of that thrombus shifting downstream and including the smaller tibial vessels. And it's kind of the uh, inverse of that for the abdominal forearm and abdominal aortic aneurysm. We worry more about rupture than 
thromboembolic problems. Although they, they do probably embolize to some degree. And I think, you know, you and I have seen one or two of them over the years. But in fact, rupture of a popliteal artery aneurysm is actually extremely rare. They rarely get to that size threshold where that is a, is a factor. So it's really that thromboembolism yeah. that we really worry about. And the, the big issue, um, and I think the reason we worry more about the distal embolization from a popliteal artery aneurysm is uh, it, it, at the end of the day, um, the thrombus is embolizing a, a short distances into uh, end vessels of the limb. Uh, these vessels are small and an occlusion of that tibial vessel or the silting up of the vessel from the bottom up over a period of time uh, then contributes to the uh, chronic limb-threatening ischemic picture uh, that then a patient would present with, um, which then presents enormous challenges in terms of the management of the patient. Just some other uh, useful information perhaps for people uh, sitting exams, Yogi. Very rare in women to see popliteal uh, artery aneurysms associated with triple A's or popliteal artery aneurysms at all, <clears throat> at all excuse me. And um, the uh, rate of bilateral popliteal artery aneurysms is about 70%. Yeah, and so I think as part of your assessment and workup of a patient with an infrarenal aneurysm, you are obliged to look for other sites of aneurysmal disease and um, popliteal arteries are often scanned um, or assessed clinically initially and then subsequently imaged to provide a better appreciation of vessel diameter. But similarly with uh, popliteal artery aneurysm, again, as part of that complete workup, you're obliged to look for other sites of aneurysmal disease, whether that's in the chest or abdomen as well. So Yogi, now just talking about uh, probably... Um where the bulk of the discussion lies, acute uh, presentations of popliteal artery aneurysms. These can obviously be very challenging cases in terms of uh, the downstream effects of the aneurysm itself. Yeah, so um, typically with a, a popliteal artery presenting acutely is in the context of an occluded aneurysm resulting in a spectrum of presentations from short distance claudication um, to profound uh, lower limb ischemia. Um, and management really uh, is tiered according to the severity of presentation and the viability of the lower limb. Um, and as such um, would affect uh, your initial approach. Um, in practice with uh, acute presentations uh, of popliteal artery aneurysm occlusions um, is particularly in the context of aneurysmal disease. Um, the urgency for intervention is based on the initial clinical assessment. In a person who has um, newly developed short distance claudication, um, but a viable lower limb, there is time to assess and manage the patient and come up with a definitive management strategy um, in a more semi-elective format, if that's fair. However, with a limb that is threatened, this requires a much more urgent intervention 
and often on presentation to a hospital, this would necessitate uh, axial imaging and usually in the context of a CT angiogram to define uh, the inflow vessels, the site of the occlusion and what the distal runoff is. The biggest issue with um, assessing outflow on a CT angiogram is often that this is a difficult area to assess on axial imaging and often necessitate angiography to help define um, whether uh, there is an outflow target. The gross management strategy overall would then be based on um, inflow, outflow vessels, the availability of conduit, and the severity of presentation. So, Yogi, let's uh, let's maybe just let's just maybe just throw you in the deep end here. Let's presume you've got someone who's uh, and they, they're typically your, your younger patients in that sort of middle age group who are in their fifties, might smoke a bit, and they've uh, they've come in with an acute ischemic limb. And let's say they're Rutherford two B, so motor function is now impaired, compromised. Yep. And you're obliged to revascularize them in the short term. You've done a CTA yep. and you've got you've had that heart sink moment where you've scanned below the knee or at the level of the knee and now there's nothing. You see a thromboaneurysm and you see no runoff. Yep. How are you gonna handle that? And I and yep. I, apolog- so, I apologize in advance. Yeah. So the difficulty with this particular situation is one, the acuity of presentation and two, the lack of defined outflow on imaging performed thus far. Um, so the, my considerations really as I approach this problem is being able um, to help plan the operative strategy. Uh, with an acute presentation, my thoughts would go to some form of open revascularization and that would be in the form of a bypass operation. However, uh, adjuncts to that would need to be consideration for thrombectomy of um, the outflow vessel as well as determining the adequacy of conduit to allow for this to happen. Um, the, my, other th- my third consideration is also the extent of the aneurysm and whether this is a focal, uh, whether this is whether this is a focal uh, popular aneurysm at the joint or whether it extends above and below and uh, whether the distal SFA is also aneurysmal in nature. Ideally, I'd go from normal to normal if possible really for this bypass. So so let's say uh, the P2 segment, so, you know, the bit right, really just right above the knees aneurysmal and the rest is fine. So the first thing I'd want to do is, um, so with the patient asleep, um, my approach here would be to perform a, my initial step would be to perform a diagnostic angiogram. Um, So I do this from an up and over technique um, to see what the outflow for for the individual was. If there was preserved outflow below the site of the occlusion, um, then it would just require the aneurysm itself being treated alone, though this is unlikely to be the case. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a. I think a, I think you're sort of mandated to do a diagnostic angiogram at the start, as we know the CTA can be a bit unreliable in assessing blown knee vessels, especially if the radiographer has not performed a delayed run. Yeah, and I, and I think the the reason I've chosen to come up and over is 
because it allows for preservation of the ipsilateral groin, especially if a bypass from the groin is required. Um, I, I agree with you that uh, a diagnostic angiogram is probably mandated when our flow is not seen or defined on the CTA. However, if there was preserved runoff, you could possibly make the argument that that may, may not necessarily be necessary. Yep. And then if the runoff's impaired, I think at that stage you're really obliged to expose the baloney popliteal, anterior tibial and other tibial vessels potentially and sequentially perform a embolectomy or thrombectomy of those vessels. Yeah, and when doing so, you're trying to ensure that you've um, got backflow from those vessels uh, initially um, and you may take the opportunity to also instill some lysis on the table whilst you're performing other parts of the operation. Yeah. And one strategy we've uh, talked about before, Yogi, is um, basically just injecting lytic agent into the uh, tibial vessels and then using an Edgemark tourniquet and instead wrapping it from foot upwards, wrapping it from knee towards the foot to try and really just milk that lytic agent into the rest of the leg to try and clear some of the outflow. Yeah. Uh, um, consultants that I've worked for previously would, would say to me, all you really need at the end of the day is one yeah. good outflow vessel. And that's what you're really aiming for in these sort of acute presentations to uh, get someone out of trouble. Um, and I think everything else other than that single vessel runoff is really, uh, um, is that, is that nugget? Yep. Would you also um, consider opening up the dorsalis pedis or the posterior tibial around the ankle to clear uh, thrombus if you look like it was um, basically not getting past the uh, the ankle and it looked like there was more clot in the foot? Yeah, look, I think in the, in the context where um, you've not got much in terms of distal outflow or back bleeding once you've done your initial anti-grade uh, thrombectomy um, with with no success with any of the other tibial vessels from an anti-grade approach. I think it's not unreasonable to consider coming retrograde from a distal exposure. However, um, a, a certain degree of realism needs to kick in at this point as this is uh, essentially a, a last-ditch approach to try yeah. and salvage the foot. Yogi, another approach which I found uh, useful before is basically um, navigating a wire into the foot and then placing a basically a CXI catheter over that and injecting um, lytic agent directly into the foot through a catheter. And that's uh, got me out of trouble once. Yeah, uh, look, I think any technique that you can utilize at that point to try and resolve um you know distal embolization of thrombus is to your advantage um sometimes it works and sometimes unfortunately the success of the procedure is not as is not as satisfactory and i think that's part of the part of the initial assessment workup management and discussion with the patient is actually being quite upfront about the high risk of limb loss associated with these presentations would you uh heparinize the patient afterwards uh, it, uh, I, the the short answer to that is not routinely. Yep. Um, 
Though I would consider it, so normally after after performing the bypass, um, I would do a completion angiogram to look at the patient's outflow. Yeah. And if there was a small amount of residual thrombus that was left post embolectomy and lysis, um, and I was concerned that uh, outflow potentially could be compromised um, or could compromise the bypass graft patency, I would consider it. And if that was, if that, uh, potentially exist. And then maybe Yogi, just a couple of other questions. How would you tunnel your bypass? And then what do you do with the native artery? So in terms of the native artery itself, um, I routinely ligate it and I use, use a heavy silk suture to do so. Yep. Uh, I've, I've got to say that I almost inadvertently try and tunnel the graft anatomically. However, I do appreciate that with large aneurysms, this can be difficult and sometimes they do need to be tunneled subcutaneously. However, a two and a half or three centimeter aneurysm, I'd still consider trying to tunnel that anatomically. Yep. So I guess uh, just maybe Yogi to explain it to people who may not be surgeons. When we um, place a bypass uh, in the leg, we have to choose a plane in which for it to lie. And uh, when we say anatomically, we're basically meaning that the bypass or graft will lie in the same plane or anatomical plane that the normal artery would. And in the instance of a popliteal artery aneurysm, the aneurysm may actually be occluding the space. So we have to find an alternate route to uh, place the graft. So in those cases, we may consider putting it under the skin and so it will be tunneled subcutaneously or some people will run it subfascially. Yeah. So, um, I guess um, with a 2B leg, it's probably clear with a two, rather for 2B leg, it's probably clear cut in terms of what um, the management process would entail. However, I pose the question to you where the uh, with a rather for 2A leg, and for those of you listening, that would be a leg with um, not as significant sensory or motor deficits of the lower limb associated with ischemia, but a, a marginally threatened leg. Does your management strategy alter in that situation and what would you do in regards to the management of that patient? Yeah, Yoga, that's a good question. I guess what you're alluding to is uh, whether or not we should be consider or considering, I should say, lysis. In the first instance, I think, you know, you need to consider what your outflow might be. If you think that the leg is threatened but still viable with time on your hand, and based on previous imaging, there was no runoff. I would consider lysing the patient. Um, if the preoperative imaging showed that there was runoff and the leg was viable, I would most likely just heparinize the patient until they go to theatre and be treated definitively. Um, I think there is some variation in the level that arterial lysis gets performed in Australasia. Some units are quite uh, keen on it. Some units less so would prefer open thromboembolectomy. Uh, but I think in the literature at least it is defined and quite well understood that there is definitely a place for preoperative thrombolysis for these patients and that there is most likely benefit in improving their outflow. Um, and obviously that comes at the, you know, the, the usual just comes with the usual discussion about lysis risks, etc. Um, but I think the real difference here, what we're saying, Yogi, is that there's two types of 
patients. Patients who can wait and patients who cannot wait. Yeah. Patients who can wait have time for the license to be run. Patients who cannot wait need to go to theatre and have the perfusion to the lower limb restored and do not have time to have the catheter place, have the license run, come back for a check, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes back down to the initial assessment of the patient and the severity of their degree of ischemia. Yep. Um, and th- rightly so, I think um, just to sort of go back to a point that Sam made there, lysis is not without risk. Um, and the biggest risk associated with lysis is the risk of major bleeding. And that's quoted at a risk of 1% or 1 in 100, which each person um, can find in their own way of trying to understand that conceptually. Um, however, that's a risk of having a bleed in the brain, chest, abdomen, elsewhere. Um, that's catastrophic. Um, and so um, when when coming up with these treatment paradigms, um, patients really do need to be counselled quite significantly about the risk that they may entail. So, Yogi, should we just briefly talk about uh, elective repairs before we move on to uh, endovascular repairs? Yeah. So um, with elective aneurysms, um, with elective popliteal artery aneurysm repairs, um, fortunately the, the the significant benefit here is they are well planned and structured before you head into the operating theatre in terms of being aware of their outflow and also the availability of conduit and also the sufficiency of their inflow vessels. Uh, this often can allow for a much more limited uh, operative procedure uh, with clear planning uh, in terms of uh, vein harvest as required. Uh, typically, um, the the procedure that's performed is a is a bypass, often a, a, a sort of a skip exclusion bypass from the um, popliteal artery just above the knee to the popliteal artery below the knee. However, sometimes bypasses do need to be longer if there's aneurysmal disease, especially of the distal SFA um, or extending into the third part of the popliteal artery itself. Um, Again, the similar principles apply in terms of um, the the choice of conduit in terms of whether that's um, vein from um, the, the leg uh, in sort of various forms of bypass or if it's a focal bypass of the middle section of the popliteal artery behind the knee, uh, sometimes this can be performed with a short segment of synthetic graft material if there is a better sizing um, uh, given the slightly ectatic nature of the artery above the aneurysm and below the aneurysm itself. Yeah, in some studies, I think one even by Wesley Moore demonstrated that uh, the patency of prosthetic interposition grafts is what we're talking about here, Yogi. Yes. Basically, uh, um, via posterior approach, are just as good and just as durable as vein grafts. Um, obviously, the main disadvantage when you're doing an interposition is the patient's prone and harvesting the long saphenous vein can be a bit more tedious and you would even consider taking the short saphenous for a short interposition graft. Um, and obviously then by using prosthetic, you make the operation a lot simpler. Yeah, so just so just to sort of reiterate that the approach is either 
from a, a medial approach where you go above to below or the aneurysm can be fixed from a posterior approach with the patient prone. Um, I've got to say from experience, even with a patient prone, I've harvested great saphenous vein as long as it's been mapped and um, with the vein harvested, harvested with a separate incision. Um, however, that's often because I've found the short saphenous vein to be smaller in caliber um, then necessary. So did you take the do you take the long saphenous in that case and close and then flip the patient over? I've actually done both. Um, so done it with the patient initially supine, then flipped to prone, but also with the patient prone, um, made the incision just with a little bit of difficulty. All right, very good. So um, I think uh, generally these are nice operations to do, Yogi. A lot of these aneurysmal, all these patients with popliteal aneurysms actually ha- can be relatively free of atherosclerotic disease, and the um, the anastomosis is actually quite nice to do. And they're usually not always, but usually have uh, good good quality conduit. The uh, for whatever reason, their long saphenous vein is of you know usually generous caliber as well as their popliteal artery. Um, and uh, often you're bypassing a short segment, as you've mentioned. You're not re- very rare would you be coming off the common femoral. Yes. Usually just doing a short little SFA or above knee popliteal bypass to below knee. Yeah. So should we now move on to endovascular repairs, which are um, still, uh, well, not still, I shouldn't say still, but are performed fairly regularly. In some centers, yeah. The, the the difficulty with the popliteal artery is that is it is an artery behind a uh, a mobile joint that can both hyperextend and, and hyper. It can also go quite with significant hyperflexion of the joint itself. And so the greatest difficulty here is that uh, the artery can be effaced transiently in those positions as a result. Uh, now in the context of trying to fix and treat a vessel with a purely endovascular first approach, particularly with a stent graft, when the, when it, with the vessel being able to go through such a range of motion, uh, especially f- with the flexion of the joint itself, this can result in effacement of the stent surfaces, but also occlusion, which presents a significant disadvantage for an endovascular first approach for, for popliteal artery aneurysms themselves. What this then necessitates is really careful patient selection in terms of the type of patient that's more likely to benefit from uh, a stent graft repair rather than an open repair. And then at the bare bones of all of this is essentially a patient who's not fit for an open operation. Yeah, I think the open operation is so so reliable and so durable that um, it's really hard to turn down its advantages, to be honest. But obviously some people do prefer... Well, the patients prefer endovascular first as an option if available. But there are certain um, anatomical constraints that make patients suitable or not suitable. So where the aneurysm is is obviously quite important. Usually the ones that benefit most from a stent graft are those ones that are really just focal behind the knee short aneurysms with a similar sized artery above the aneurysm and below the aneurysm. And obviously, Yogi, the main thing we worry about is the runoff vessels. So I think 
most people would say, and hopefully most people would say, that if the runoff vessels are poor, then that particular patient would not be a good candidate for a uh, stent graft. Yeah, and I think you touched on some very important points that apart from patient factors, there are aneurysm morphology factors that contribute. And uh, just to go back to a point, I think one of the difficulties is sizing for um, sizing your repair, uh, predominantly because the vessel diameters above and below the aneurysm can be can be markedly different by a few mils, which should affect the type of stent that is used, uh, in particular the diameter of the stent that's used, and potentially the use of more than one stent to try and complete the repair. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, Yogi, as you know, that um, these patients with popliteal aneurysms can have popliteal arteries that are, or the non-aneurysmal artery measuring close to nine millimeters in size, eight millimeters in size. And then when you get to that sort of size, you need a general anesthetic in most instances to basically put the sheath in, which can be a large sheath as well. So then you're not really saying, well, I'm doing one procedure under local anesthetic, I'm doing one under general, you're kind of subjecting a patient to a general anesthetic in the uh, in the end anyway. Yeah, the, I guess the difference is the length of your procedure is definitely shorter with an endovascular yep. first intervention. I think the other point to make is the hinge point of the artery, which most people would think is directly behind the knee joint itself, but actually angiographically this is not the case, is it, Sam? No, I mean... Um... Ever put a knee into flexion yogi when you've done a completion angiogram? It's really um, that section above the knee that's uh, the most tortuous and then above knee popliteal fossa. Correct. And so, in fact, where the potential site of trouble actually arises is above it. Now, Sam, in this era of uh, minimally invasive surgery, there are definitely lots of people around the world and, and particularly around this country they've tried to come up with innovative ways to try and maintain patency of stents especially with the hyperflexible nature of the joint itself uh, but the traditional repair is usually with a covered stent graft uh, and the most common being the viban graft which is used um, and some people have considered using adjuncts like lining the stent with a self-expanding stent like a superior however that's not common practice no. Um, some of the other, I guess, uh, tips are yoga. You can make sure you can try and end your stent graft in the P3 segment. So even if the aneurysm's sort of in the distal P2 or P2 segment, you can extend further down to try and have the landing zone, the more um, non-flexible part of the artery. But um, I think what we worry about most is when these when vibans can fail, they tend to take out the runoff. And that's, I suppose, the most dreaded complication. So I would, if I was to do this, and I have done this procedure before, I would be placing the patient on dual antiplatelet therapy for life. Yeah. And Sam, just from a more technical point of view, in terms of sizing and planning the um, stent graft repair, um, what are some of the technical points that, um, that you take into account when planning your repair? Well, it's just like an EVA, you, know, you need to consider roughly 10 to 15% oversizing for the stent. Uh, you need to consider your proximal and distal landing zones. I won't talk again about uh, uh, runoff. Obviously, it's important, but I would say at least two vessel runoff is mandatory. 
and you don't want to have more than one millimeter size difference between uh, proximal and distal, um, sorry, between the stents. So if your proximal landings, if, if your proximal sealing zone is um, nine millimeters and then your distal popliteal where you're going to end the stent is five millimeters, I would say that's too big of a difference. You really want similar size vessels and you would really want to have each stent um, one millimeter in size different from the next one. So you want a nine to an eight, eight to a seven, but you can't go from nine to a six, for example. So um, the ideal situation is you're able to sort this out with a single stent graft of single di diameter. However, if at all, you would compromise by using two stents if necessary, but you try and avoid to do that if you can. And ironically, the patients who are sort of best suited for a viaban are kind of the best who are best suited for a popliteal, um, sorry, a posterior repair in a way. So I guess um, if those patients are fit for surgery, um, I guess you're obliged to offer them the open operation, which would probably be quite durable if you're doing a focal interposition graph via a uh, posterior approach. Yeah. Would you ever consider um, a lysis and viaban? I think that I think that that as an option is definitely a credible option, in in really in a patient who again, uh, you're able to do the majority of the intervention under um, minimal anaesthetic, um, and really in a patient who their fitness for um, any form of prolonged bypass repair. Uh, is not feasible. So in short, however, uh, my preference for for popliteal aneurysm or disease is an open repair. So Yogi, I think that's a fairly um, uh, comprehensive discussion about popliteal artery aneurysms. Obviously, uh, I think each of these techniques could uh, encompass a whole episode. I'm sure we could get a guest on to talk about how they do popliteal artery stent grafts um but uh, i think as an overview that's a a fairly good uh good start uh yogi if people want to find us where can they go so they can check us out on our website which is vascular.fm we are also on twitter at at vascular fm and you can also find us on instagram um, I, however, I often always forget this. It's at the retrograde approach. If you want to subscribe, go to vascular.fm forward slash Apple for Apple podcasts and for Spotify, vascular.fm slash Spotify. Yogi, it's been great. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Till next time, hey? See ya. Bye.